0: Dr. John MacArthur is our guest over 30 years as pastor of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. He's the author of, oh my goodness, uh, at least 50 books, I believe, including The Murder of Jesus, The Gospel According to Jesus, Ashamed of the Gospel, Hard to Believe. And he's here with us on the phone today to talk about his latest book entitled The Truth War, Fighting for Certainty in the Age of Deception. And we welcome back to the Mike Corley program Dr. John MacArthur. Hello, sir. How are you?
1: Well, I'm doing well. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Thank
0: you again. Well, let's get right to it. What led you to write this book? That's kind of a broad opening question, and a good place to start, I guess.
1: Absolutely. Uh, you know, I just am passionate about the truth of God. I, uh, I know that you can't be saved without the truth, you can't be sanctified without the truth. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth, Jesus said. We're begotten again by the word of truth. Everything that we know about God, everything we know about Christ, everything we know about our Christian lives, everything we know about the past, the present, and the future in terms of redemption is bound up in an understanding of God's divine truth. And because the truth is so crucial, it is always under assault by by the enemy, by Satan and all those who are part of his kingdom of darkness. And you can go all the way back to the garden, where Satan comes along and basically tells Eve that God didn't tell her the truth. God said, You'll right. die. Satan says, No, you're not going to die. God lied to you. So the truth of God is always under attack. Satan is hitting, it at, it, hitting at it one way or another. And, and we live in a day today when the truth is under a massive assault, but the church, in the name of tolerance, love, acceptance, unity, doesn't have a will to battle for the truth, and that's really what prompted me to write the book, to try to call Christians to get serious about taking a stand for the truth.
0: Well, you said questioning the truth is not new, and, of course, like you said, going back to the Garden, but as we look at the evangelical church today, and we're going to talk a little bit here also about the emergent or the emerging church, what are some of the distinctives, uh, in your opinion, of this particular battle for the truth?
1: There are all different ways in which the truth is attacked, Um, You know, I look back at my life, and the first uh, section of my life, the first few years of my ministry life, there was an attack by liberalism on the inerrancy, on the authority of Scripture. Then there was an attack by um, mystical Mm -hmm. groups and uh, the the charismatic groups saying uh, that the, the Bible is true, but that's not all. There are more visions, more revelations, more words coming from God, and this was an attack on the singularity of Scripture by saying God is still speaking, and he's speaking through visions and revelations and things like that. And then along came kind of the psychological emphasis that uh, God speaks through your own feelings, and, and uh, God has a special and a particular little private uh, word for you that he sort of writes in your heart. And these are subtle things. And then you have open attacks on, on the Bible that are going on today, and I think primarily that the hit is coming from those who say the Bible's not clear. This is the thrust of the emerging movement that, uh, sure, the Bible is the Word of God, but we really don't have any idea what it means. It's an ancient book. It's hard to interpret. There are so many opinions. We can't really be sure. So I see this as the latest attack, and it's an attack on the clarity of the Scripture.
0: In fact, Dr. MacArthur, some of those um, uh, proponents, some of those even even within the evangelical circles, almost kind of like take pride in their lack of clarity. Is that true?
1: Yeah. I don't think think that the actual lack of clarity is the issue, because I don't think it is unclear. I think it's so clear that they don't like what it says. Hmm. And so to get out of being responsible for what it says, they say, well, it's not clear. So uh, the bottom line is, the scripture itself says a wayfaring man or a stranger, though he be a fool, need not err. Jesus said you have to become as a little child before you can even enter the kingdom. So there's enough clarity in the Bible, even for a little child. So it isn't that it is unclear. It is that what it says is clear. For illustration's sake, the emerging church doesn't want to make a statement on homosexuality. They don't want to say that homosexuality is a sin. Well, the Bible's not unclear on that, crystal clear on the fact that it's a sin. Uh, so they want to hold up the Bible still as true, but say, well, what it says about homosexuality isn't really that clear. So I think they kind of back into that view from not wanting what really is clear.
0: And then the issue of homosexuality was Brian McLaren, I believe, that said to set a five-year moratorium to decide on what the Bible Says about homosexuality, and then after five years, if we still don't know, we'll just take another five years.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what he said. We don't know what the Bible says about it. Well, we do know. Five years from now, we're not going to get any more information out of the Bible. That's 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 the perfect illustration, of course, uh, that I talk about in the book that they never, they never really want to come to grips with what the Bible says because they want to live a certain life in a certain way and have certain freedoms, and so. They blame the Bible for not being clear.
0: Why do you think, uh, Dr. MacArthur, uh, within evangelical, the evangelical church today, that the regard for or the will to, um, to affirm the truth of God's Word, the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, the authoritation, uh, authoritative aspects of the Scripture, uh, is not being held? Why is that such a battle today in evangelical circles?
1: Well, because I think there, there are a couple of reasons. But the first reason is because people are not trained theologically. Mm. There, there's not clarity, precision in preaching. Preaching is uh, it's emotional, lots of illustrations, practical insights, pragmatic, that kind of stuff. But our, we have a generation of evangelicals that are doctrinally ignorant. They, they don't even understand the necessity of careful, precise interpretation of Scripture. there's just not any commitment to sound doctrine and theology. And this this comes because of the reigning pragmatism in the church that we do, it gets a crowd, uh, we tweak our services to to reach the seekers, Uh, we try to make them culturally uh, cute so that the people in our culture are going to feel comfortable there. They're much more concerned about methodology, much more concerned about popularity, much more concerned about trying to say what people might like to hear. Uh, there's a, just a dominant pragmatism in the style of ministry and in preaching that has divorced evangelical people from sound doctrine, from clear, in-depth Bible teaching and sound doctrine. So they have no will to, to battle for the truth because they really have no commitment to the truth.
0: Now, that's when you're talking about the average believer, the average church member, and as Barna and different uh, polls point that out about the uh, uh, issue of biblical illiteracy. But when you turn to the pulpit, how much responsibility does the pastor, the teacher in the pulpit bear um, for that level of biblical inerrancy? And is it out of ignorance, lack of courage, or just plain old laziness?
1: Probably all of the above, uh, (laughs) but I think they bear the full weight of responsibility. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 13 it says that we have to give an account we have to give an account in fact in 2nd uh, Timothy chapter 4 we are commanded before God and the Lord Jesus Christ to preach the word and we have an accountability before the Lord to do that we will one day give an account for the faithfulness of our ministry. Paul says that when he writes to the Corinthians. You know, it's a small thing what men may say of me. He says, even when I don't know anything against myself, herein am I not justified. But one day, when all the secrets are going to be revealed, uh, then every man will have his appropriate praise from God. So we're accountable to God. And I I think the pastor basically has one great accountability, and it is this, to live and proclaim the truth. That's what we are called to do. That's what we are accountable before God for. And I just see pastors who, because they're not willing to do the hard work, Mm -hmm. because they want to be popular, because they want to draw crowds, uh, because they want people to like them, or because they get seduced uh, off into some other error, whatever, don't just preach the truth. And really the full weight of the responsibility is on them. It was in Hosea where uh, the scripture says, like people, like priest. Uh, Or the the words of the New Testament gospel, when a man is fully discipled, he will be like his teacher. And so the teachers and the preachers bear the full weight of responsibility for what the people are. And uh, if the people have no will to know and love and fight for the truth, it's because they haven't been trained to do that by their pastors.
0: You may hear this a lot, I know I do, that um, especially from pastors, leaders, elders in churches, why can't you guys find some middle ground between uh, what you believe and what you um, uh, through the Millers and the McManuses and the um, uh, McLarens and Driscolls and so on. Can we find middle ground when we don't even agree on the most foundational of the issues, uh, especially yeah, the inerrancy I mean, of Scripture? Look,
1: there's no middle ground in this sense. There's truth and there's error. There's what's right and there's what's wrong. There's no middle ground. So there's just the battle for the truth. That doesn't mean we have to separate over every little disagreement, like the mode of baptism or or eldership in the church or something like that. But we have to acknowledge that there is absolute truth. And then everything else is non- truth and there's no middle ground there. So we have to make the great effort to come to a knowledge of the truth. And and I just don't think it's that difficult. I I, look I preach the truth and I I check myself against people who who around me today who teach the truth and we find ourselves in agreement ninety some percent of the time. I check the people that are dead from the last century. I check the Reformers, I check the Puritans I keep going back, and I find that we all continue to teach essentially the same great truth that now the emerging church people are saying they can't figure out and nobody ever has figured out. So those who pursue the truth are not looking for middle ground. They're looking for the truth, as it's indicated in the Word of God. And as I said earlier, we don't separate from other believers on every small element of the truth, but when it comes to the Trinity and the gospel and the things that are clear and central in the Word of God, uh, we unite around those things, and we will not unite with those who do not accept those great truths.
0: And surely can't. We're talking with Dr. John MacArthur about his new book, The Truth War, and in the book, Dr. MacArthur, again, you name names. Um, I name names, but many people say that naming names of people or ministry specifically is being intolerant, insensitive, and not in accordance with Matthew 18. How do you respond to that when people say that?
1: Well, I like to remind people that uh, the Apostle John said, Beware of Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence. That's naming names. He named Diotrephes, and the whole world has known it ever since. It was the Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, who talked about Hymeneus and Alexander who uh, were corrupting the faith, and he named. Names. Now, there are all kinds of examples in the Bible of those who are pointed out to the Church as dangerous people to be seriously avoided, and the Bible even names names. Uh, th- th- from my standpoint, um, it, it kind of works like this. If someone is in print, if someone is advocating something that is a threat to the truth, Dishonoring the Lord, attacking the gospel, seducing the the Lord's people away into error, and they—that's public proclamation in print. Then I have the the right and even the obligation to answer that. I don't I don't uh, attack people for something they say in a private conversation. uh, I don't betray some kind of private trust. That, That there's no reason for that. But when you say in print, this is my position. Historically, that's, that's just how scholasticism works. That's how the ongoing effort to refine our understanding works. Somebody says something, and you answer. And I've said this to people through the years. Anything I write, anything I put in a book, anyone can uh, attack, examine, examine, uh, make an effort to expose if it's true or not true. I-, I love to think of people being Bereans and searching the Scriptures to see if these things are so or not. I expect that. I expect a book to be critiqued and maybe somebody points out something to me that uh, that is an error. That That's part of it. But the people who will will want to do that to others, don't want others to do that to them and so if you attack some writers they'll cry foul and and then they'll say that you're you're really abusing sure. christian love to do that that's not the issue it's it's about the truth it's not really personal it is about the content
0: i don't know uh, i've had an exchange over the last month or so with a particular pastor um, there in your area who um... took great offense to something that i wrote and wanted to come on the program personally, and I offered him surely to come on, and I said, "But we would. I'd like to also play the clips from the message where you said this, that, and the other." And with that, he declined and and will not come on the program. So, sure. uh, you're right. Sometimes when it's come back to them they they uh, go in the other direction.
1: Yeah, they want to be able to criticize you, but they don't want to be criticized.
0: True, absolutely true. Now, you once said, I don't know if you said you probably said this in a message, and we've only uh, done interviews maybe once or twice before that you thought the emerging church or the emergent church, and there's people use the two different um, interchangeably or sometimes to mean the same, is the obvious next progression of the secret-sensitive, purpose-driven movement. Do you still think that's the case?
1: Yeah, I just think uh, pragmatism, or doing what's practical rather than what's theologically sound, has a certain progression. The first wave is the seeker kind of thing, uh, you you design uh, you design church for the unbeliever. That's the bottom line. You 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 say what people want to hear. In fact, you can go back. Let's go back to Harry Emerson Fosdick. Go back in the mm-hmm. 1920s. Harry Emerson Fosdick, classic liberal, comes along, sets the gospel aside, preaches a social message, uh, a message of. Uh, You know, you can raise yourself by your own footsteps. You can be a spiritual person. You can elevate yourself. It's all about works. It's all about self-improvement. Harry Emerson Fosdick has a disciple. His disciple is Norman Vincent Peale. Norman Vincent Vincent Peale comes along and is well-known for a book he wrote called The Power of Positive Thinking. Takes it a next step. What's his preaching? What's his message? Well, you can be a better person. You can fulfill your dream. You can become what you want to be. He has a disciple. His disciple is Robert Shuler. What's Robert Shuler's message? Yes. Whatever you want to be, you can be. You, you, and people come to his church to hear him affirm them, and they can climb their mountain and they can achieve their greatness. And and you know, they, they if they let his big thing is you need self esteem. You need to believe in yourself and trust yourself. He is the grandchild of uh, of Fosdick. He has a disciple named Bill Hybels, and Bill Hybels confesses in print to to be a disciple of Robert Shuler. And Hybels comes along, takes it another step into the seeker movement. And so everything is built around the psychological model. You appeal to people's felt needs, whatever they think they lack in their life, whatever's missing in their life. Uh, you know, you approach them that way. It's not a God-centered approach, a man-centered approach, and that's that's sort of the flow. Then he has a disciple. His disciple, also a very close disciple of Schuler is Rick Warren, Correct. and Rick comes along, and he's got 25 different self-help groups in his church, so everybody can improve themselves, and uh, they can find their purpose in life and be all that they can be, uh, and all of that builds it on the same felt-need viewpoint. That the next logical step, I think, in a movement absent of theology, void of theology, is to figure out what the next generation wants. Mm. And what this generation wants is they don't want anybody intruding into their lifestyle. It was almost like the last one said, you know, I know some things are wrong in my life. Um, I'd like to fix myself so I have some self-esteem. This modern generation is saying, or postmodern generation is saying, I don't want to fix myself. I'm really cool the way I am, and you better accept me the way I am. All right. So if you're going to accept them the way they are, you watch their movies, you listen to their music, you curse like they curse you're a cool dude like they are you don't you don't attack their carnality you don't attack worldliness you, you, and and you don't preach at them so you eliminate the sermon altogether light a few candles uh, uh bring in some mystical sort of medieval ceremony which a right. lot of the medieval a lot of the emerging churches do and and you give them just kind of what they want uh, all I'm saying is there's just a progression when doctrine isn't the issue, and the Bible isn't the issue, when the pure gospel uh, isn't trusted, when you don't, when you believe that you have to give the the sinner what the sinner wants, there, there's a natural progression in the way the thinking of the culture flows is the way you're going to adjust the church.
0: I have written a lot, talked a lot about uh, a book called Blue Like Jazz, and I believe you mentioned that in Donald Miller in, in the Truth War. And one of the um, things that have come back to me, some of the comments have come back to me, and it's it's been thousands of them. Is that they compare themselves to ref- uh, some of the great reformers such as Luther and Calvin? What's your response to that when they say, "Well, you know, uh, Driscoll and Miller and some of these others are are just reformers in in the uh, in the ilk of uh, Martin Luther"?
1: That's just outrageous. Hmm. That you know, you don't do that for yourself. History will do that for you. Martin Luther didn't hail himself as the great reformer. History looked back and did that. Calvin didn't label himself as the great, great reformer. History did that because of the body of work that the man produced. These guys today who are willing to see themselves as great reformers of the church better realize that the history hasn't been written yet, and it's not built on style. It was not the style of ministry that Luther had that changed the world. It was the content. It wasn't the style of ministry that Calvin had that changed things. It wasn't in either case a, a lack of confidence in the Bible. Luther restored the integrity of Scripture. Right. Calvin restored the integrity of Scripture. These guys are removing it, diminishing it, depreciating it, and then to call themselves reformers—that uh, that's just an outrageous thing. Um, that that to say nothing of the egotism of it.
0: Mm. Is there anything that shocks or surprises you anymore, Dr. MacArthur?
1: Well, I don't know that there could be much left in the world in which we live that could shock us. Uh, I, I guess i uh, the saddest thing is that all of this is done in the name of Jesus Christ. Right. And I guess the thing that shocks me most, most is the, 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 the patience of the Lord, that he tolerates it. I, 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 I love the church. I love the truth. I just want to serve the Lord and serve his truth. I'm not trying to build the church or build the kingdom. I just want to be faithful to the word so that the Lord can can build it and do his work his way. So I don't I don't have any personal agenda, but all of the, the things that interrupt and tear at the life and power of the church that the Lord tolerates in his name, uh that that to me is is the shock and I uh I, I just wonder how he can be as patient as he is with the, uh, with those who misrepresent him. I, and it's always so sad to me that uh, people hail themselves as the preachers of Christ, the ones who represent Christ, and then, then proclaim things that are clearly not consistent with his word. Yes. There's just a one way to look at it. Would be I never want to say to anyone that. Jesus said something, or God said something that he didn't say. Hmm. I don't want to put words in God's mouth. Secondly, I don't want to withhold from people anything God has said, because I don't want to take words out of his mouth. So I'm left with proclaiming the word of God in its purity and in its clarity.
0: Dr. MacArthur, in the final minutes that we've got left here, the last two, um, well, the last chapter and appendix in your book uh, deals with uh, how to survive an age apostasy and why discernment is so out of fashion. What would you tell listeners right now um, as they lack discernment and how do, they, uh, how do they, how do you have discernment? How do you know to discern and, and know the difference and be able to uh, uh, examine and divide?
1: Yeah, if you were to ask me what is the biggest problem in the evangelical church today,
0: mm-hmm. I would
1: say probably apart from unregenerate church members, it would be the lack of discernment. Because okay. if you can't discern, you can die of a thousand heresies. Right. Uh, it's like AIDS. If you have AIDS, you don't die of AIDS. You, you die because your immune system can't defend itself, and you can die of a thousand diseases. Mm-hmm. The church has spiritual AIDS. It, it can't discern, therefore it can't protect itself from a myriad of heresies. How do you do that? There's only one way. You have to know the truth. You have to you have to be able to diagnose error, and the only way you can diagnose error is to know what is the truth. And yet you have a generation of Christian people who do not have the theological knowledge to defend themselves against error. I would go so far as to say, if you were just to pick the average church member and ask them to explain to you the doctrine of justification, right? doctrine of justification the substitutionary death of christ and what it means they would be hard-pressed to do that
0: i imagine, uh some pastors would be hard pressed to do that
1: i think so and and so you you don't have the criteria there's no shortcut to discernment Right. it's not a there's no there's no magic path to discernment it, it is knowing what the bible teaches and once you have the plumb line you can measure everything
0: good point the plumb line being the word of god Right. Can someone not know truth and be a Christian? I know that's an an obvious question, but I wanted your feedback on it. Well,
1: they have to know the truth that saves. Mm -hmm. They might not know the truth about everything, but you have to know the truth about the person of Christ, God. You have to know the truth about Christ's death on the cross. You have to know the truth about repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection and you have to confess Him as Lord and embrace Him as Savior, you have to know that truth to be saved.
0: Dr. MacArthur, I know you're optimistic um, uh, in many, many ways. What is your immediate concern for the church today?
1: Well, I, I just think that there's, there's such a free and loose use of the word church that it's even it even labels places that are not churches at all, and I'm not just talking about the emerging church, I'm talking about all kinds of churches, mm-hmm. from the Catholic Church to the liberal churches to the Church of Scientology to, who knows how, Mormon Church, and Jehovah's Witness Church, and uh, it, it just grieves me no end how identifying yourself as a church uh, today tells absolutely nothing about whether you at all represent the truth, and in most cases, probably the places that call themselves churches may not at all be faithful to the truth. So that's the greatest grief, and I I would love to see a great restoration to the truth. And that's why I wrote the book. It really is a call to arms. I'm not trying to stand alone. I'm trying to send this message out in the book and say, you know, if you're a true Christian, you can't stand on the sidelines. You've got to join the battle for the truth.
0: I agree. the book is called uh, The Truth War. Fighting for Certainty in an Age of Deception. And the author is Dr. John MacArthur. And I said, uh, not uh, hoping it didn't come across as a disrespectful or uh, a way not to Dr. MacArthur or, or to, the, to the Word of God. But after you read this book, I came to the conclusion, or at least a thought, not conclusion, that um, uh, God almost didn't call anyone else to preach the gospel but John MacArthur. Because this book uh, speaks directly to the issue of fighting for certainty in an age of of deception. The book is available uh, at any bookstore. and You can find out about it through Grace to You at gty.org, through our website, through Amazon.com, and bookstores across the nation. It's published by Thomas Nelson Publishers. Uh, Dr. MacArthur, one last question before we let you go. Sure. And um, did you get a response from R.C. Sproul about your comment at the recent Shepherds Conference about Calvinism and premillennialism? <laughs>
1: Uh, I haven't gotten one yet, but I
0: might get one. <laughs> That's, uh, folks will have to look that up on the website to know what, exactly what we're talking about. Dr. MacArthur, there's not anything that I can say as we close this interview to say how much I appreciate you and your ministry, how blessed I am and so many thousands of others are for your faithfulness. And uh, we just pray for you, we lift you up, and we're so honored to be a, par- a small part of partnering with you in what the Lord wants to do in this day and time.
1: Thank you so much, Mike. That's greatly encouraging. God bless you, too.
0: Thank you.